Go ahead and open God's Word this morning. I'm going to ask you to open up to the book of Mark this morning. Mark chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. We're going to hear a, a very uh, familiar story uh, from the Gospel of Mark that is going to help us understand uh, the first of four principles that we're going to learn in this series that we've entitled One Month to Live, a series that is focused in on the question that we need to ask each and every day, not only during this time, but throughout the years of our life, and that is, what would change? What would I do differently? How would I respond to the situation before me if I had one month to live, 30 days left here on earth? I hope you've begun to ask that question and, and, and asking it with greater frequency as we continue in this series, asking the question, what would I do if I had one month to live? How would that impact my life at home? How would that impact my life at work? How would it impact my relationship with family and friends? In regards to my Savior, what would that look like? What would that involve uh, if it was an encounter with a stranger? How would it change my time, my priorities? What would be different in my life if I knew I had one month to live? Now, last week we did an overview of those four principles. These four principles come from Jesus' life, a life that Jesus modeled because there was no one except for him who knew exactly how much time he had here on earth. He knew when he had 30 days left. He knew when he had seven days left. He knew when his last day was coming. And we see that he lived passionately. He loved completely. He learned humbly. And we know, of course, he left boldly. Jesus is the only one who can give us that example I wish I could say, just as Jesus did at the end of his life, it is finished. Everything that I had on earth was accomplished. Everything that the Father had called for me to do, I have gotten done. As I look back at this week, it was a busy week for me. Work was busy, church is busy, family is always busy. And in the last seven days, there was much that I would hope to have accomplished, much that I would have hoped to be able to put in the column of, it is finished, it is done. And yet I failed to do it. Promises that went unfulfilled, opportunities that I missed, appointments that have to be rescheduled because of the busyness of the schedule I've already got. And yet when it comes to Jesus, I need to know that he accomplished all that he had to do. Because he knew his time was limited, and so he focused his time on that which was most important and on that which was eternal. And so we're going to learn what that looks like from the example of Jesus, as well as four men who we never hear their names, and how in one day they lived passionately, and what it did for those around them. Let us stand as we read from God's Word this morning. And then I'll ask for God's blessing, we'll get right into the message. A few days later, starting in chapter 2 of Mark, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd... They made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, 
lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, Get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we are brought to an incredible scene where your son Jesus is ministering and and speaking uh, to the people. And Lord, it is through this time that four men, we don't know their names, we don't know where they were from, but all we know is that they did all they could to make sure a friend would get to you. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would be one of those four friends to the world around us. That, Lord, just like those four friends, that we would get rid of anything that hinders us, anything that gets in our way to getting people close to you. Lord, that we ourselves would not be content with just sitting in a crowd, but that we would desire to be up close and personal with our Savior. Lord, you desire for us to live passionately. You desire for us to live life to the full. And it involves following your example and those who brought people closest to you. So speak, O Lord, as we've just heard sung. Speak to our hearts that we would be changed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today we focus in on this text with the focus being on the principle that we as Christians must live passionately. We learned last week in our overview that we are to love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, and strength. One translation puts it this way, to love God passionately with all of who you are. That's what we're called to do. A passionate life is a life that is loving God with all that is in them. A passionate life is a life that lives for him, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard. But living, with, living for him with all the energy and excitement that we have within us. And yet for many of us this morning, we find ourselves burdened by the issues of life. Burdened by uh, the list of things to do. This last week in uh, our small group, uh, the question came up, how uh, do we look at uh, our lives as we wake up and uh, as we look forward to the new day, knowing that God can do great things in that new day that has dawned? And uh, one of the individuals, I think quite honestly and, and quite properly, if they know my own routine, is... The only first thought that they have is, can I have five minutes more of sleep? We're not thinking passionately. We're not thinking about what God will do in this new day that he has made. In fact, we're not even concerned many times about what God can do because our lives are so focused on what we want to accomplish, on what we feel is most important. 
But we're going to learn today that if we want to live life to the full, that Jesus says he brings to us in John 10.10, that it involves living differently. It involves putting other priorities as more important than the ones that we have. And so we can't be burdened by the issues of the day. We can't be burdened by the schedules that we try to keep. But what we must do is live for God. Live for him with all our heart. I want you to turn in your Bibles for a moment. We're going to sit here just for a second and then get back into our key text. But turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I wonder if Paul, when writing to the church at Rome, uh, recognized that people were struggling. Of course, in Rome, that was a busy place, full of all kinds of business and commerce. And I wonder if uh, the church was struggling to keep its passion, struggling to understand its place in this world. And within this great chapter where we are called as brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, to passionately give ourselves to the Lord, he says this in Romans 12, 11. He says, never <clears throat> be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Your fervor, keep up your zeal. These are passionate words. These are words that Paul wants to strike at the heart uh, of each of us today. Now, there's an important truth I want you to glean from that passage. Uh, one of the, the three truths I want us to get is, first of all, our zeal or our passion is something that must be maintained. What it means is that passion isn't a given. Zeal isn't a given. Our fervor for spiritual things isn't just going to happen, but it must be maintained. Look at what the text says. It says that we must never be lacking in zeal, but keep our spiritual fervor. That word keep literally means one who contends for something. One who is fighting for that which they want to keep. It's an aggressive word. It's a word that is active. And some of us have lost our passion for the Lord. We've lost our passion for eternal things because we have not maintained our zeal. Oh, we have zeal for many other things. Our hobbies, the kids' activities, uh, the passion for the workplace, maybe in some particular relationship that we have. But when it comes to the Lord's work, are we maintaining uh, that zeal that the Lord wants us to have in living passionately? Now, I want you to understand, uh, Paul isn't just speaking to people like your preacher, extroverts. Not people that are just, uh, by nature, excited. We need to understand that passion and zeal are not a personality trait, but a commitment. We either commit to being a passionate people or we commit not to be. Now, I can assure you that it's easier for some to be passionate. As some of you, my, my friends, uh, it, it may be difficult for you, but that doesn't mean what Paul says is, uh, as he speaks. Uh, extroverts never be lacking in zeal. You, you, it comes easy to you. And so you excitable people, keep up your spiritual fervor. He doesn't say that. He doesn't create a distinction. He says all of us should never be lacking in our spiritual fervor, never be lacking in zeal. All of us must be passionate. We must be excited about what the Lord is doing. The third thing I want to pull from that 
is that we aren't just to be passionate about just anything. It doesn't say that we are to keep up our fervor for our favorite sports team or our favorite hobby or our closest relationship, but that we are to keep up, and he gives an adjective to it, our spiritual fervor. As I've just said, a lot of us are passionate about things. Some of you who will never shout out an amen will be yelling it at your TV in a matter of a couple hours. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! Did you see what Devin Hester did? And you say, I lack passion. Some of you ladies are more passionate about what you will see in the ads today than you are the ministry that God has called you to be a part of. Oh, we've got passion. We've got excitement. I was on Facebook and I was blown away at how many passionate people there were because Aurora now has a Chick-fil-A. Some of you just got passionate because you heard that and you're like, that's where we're going. Not on Sundays, that's right, because they're passionate about God. That's right. Now some of you aren't as passionate. I'm amazed at what I see on Facebook of the things that people are passionate about. And then, then I'm, I'm excited and you'll get comments, tons of comments. You know, I'm passionate, I'm going to this place for this sale. And, uh, or I'm, I'm passionate because this event is coming to town. And people, oh, that's great, that's awesome. And then someone will list uh, a, a passage of scripture that just means so much to them. And just some thumbs up. Sounds good. Thanks for sharing that. We lack spiritual fervor. We lack passion. And we wonder why churches are not effective when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, Tim, how do you know I'm not full of spiritual fervor? Let me ask this question. When was the last time you had a spiritual conversation with someone who wasn't a believer? When? How long has it been that you were so excited by what the gospel of Jesus Christ shares and what Christ has done in your life that you didn't care what people thought? And you said, can I just tell you something? I'm I'm ready to burst at the seams. God loves me. And Jesus died for me. And he wants to change your life just as he's changed mine. Now notice what this passage tells us. What does this spiritual fervor look like? Notice what he says as he uh, puts this all together in perspective in verse 9. A passionate life is one that loves sincerely, that's hate, that hates what is evil, that clings to what is good, that is devoted to one another in brotherly love, that honors one another above yourself. Spiritual fervor and zeal And serving the Lord means that we will be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. We will be faithful in prayer. That we will share with God's people who are in need. That we will practice hospitality. Living passionately means that we will bless those who persecute us. We will bless and not curse. We will rejoice with those who rejoice. We will mourn with those who mourn. We will live in harmony with one another. A life that is passionate about Christ and his mission in our lives are not proud, but we are willing to associate with people of low position. A life that is passionate does not find itself being conceited. It does not repay evil for evil. It's careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. 
a life that is passionate, says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on me, I will live at peace with everyone. This is the life that God wants for you. This is the full life that John 10, 10 has told us to live out. And so last week we learned that God wants to give us a full life. But for us to have the full life that God wants, for us to get above the fray, we have to live differently. I want you to turn back to the book of Mark. Now that we have a theological understanding of this idea of living passionately, let's get a practical understanding of how this is lived out. And in uh, Mark chapter 2, to give you just a setting, this is a story that three of the Gospels speak about. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all speak to this particular situation. We know from the text that Jesus has entered Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus' hometown. Now, what I mean by that is, for some reason, because of what uh, Mark has shared with us, and Luke as well in his uh, version of the story, uh, says that this was Jesus' home. Now, we know that Jesus was not born there, of course. We know that he wasn't raised there. But it seems that Jesus must have found himself residing uh, in this place. Now, we know uh, from the text right before it, that Jesus may have been at Peter's home because he would have just finished up just a couple days beforehand healing Peter's mother-in-law. And so we have Jesus in this home. And there seems to be a great buzz about Jesus. The text tells us that the people heard that Jesus had come home, that so many gathered there, there was no room left, not even outside the door. The picture here is a house full of people, jam-packed, trying to see this Jesus, trying to hear this Jesus, trying to bring the afflicted to Jesus. They're doing this because Jesus has done some amazing things in the days just preceding this. And as a result of this, Jesus at the beginning of his ministry already has a following Word had gotten out that Jesus was an incredible teacher and a healer, one who had the power far beyond anything that they had ever read about of the prophets. And verse 2 tells us that now a multitude had come to see him. The place was so full that you couldn't even get into the front door. But what did this crowd look like? Who was in this crowd? I want us to notice that the first thing that we need to understand about living uh, passionately is that we must involve climbing above the problems of our lives. What living passionately means is that we climb above the issues that seem to have us down, to have us struggling. And I want you to notice the crowd for a moment because there's some people in the crowd I want us to see. First of all, within this crowd, I see people that are hurting. There are hurting people in the crowd. As you write that in your outlines, notice what the text tells us. The text tells us that within the crowd, some men, verse 3 says, brought to Jesus a paralytic, a man who is paralyzed. He's hurting. Now, we don't know how long he's been paralyzed. We don't know the cause of his paralysis. But commentators and scholars believe that we get just a small view of what may have caused it. 
When Jesus says, in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Commentators and scholars believe that the reason why Jesus responded in that way was to grab the attention of the paralytic, that there was something in the paralytic's past life, a life of sin, a life of of, uh, living it up, that had caused an accident to happen that made this man paralyzed. And so there was something in this man's past that his lifestyle or the way, the way that he lived had brought forth a circumstance or an issue that had caused this paralysis. Now, what I don't mean by that is that uh, because he sinned, God paralyzed him. We, we know that that's not the, uh, the understanding of what we see in the text but that maybe because of some drunkenness he, he, he had fallen, or maybe because of uh, some sort of uh, uh, anger that he was unable to resolve uh, caused a fight that may have caused this injury. We're not sure, but it seems that this is a man whose life of sin had caused a different kind of life, this life as a one who was paralyzed. Second, within the crowd, and I'll come back to these, but just as a way of introduction, there were people in the crowd who were helpless. Notice in Mark chapter 1 this morning. In Mark chapter 1, in fact, right uh, pretty much after the calling of the disciples in verses 14 through uh, 20, in verses 21, it says that they went to Capernaum. This is where Jesus is at. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and they began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And then from that verse on, all the way to the end of chapter 1, we see Jesus involved with people uh, that not only are hurting, but are helpless. In verse 29 of chapter 1, it says, As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. It goes on to say uh, in verse 40 of chapter 1, A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cured. Over and over in, first, in the first chapter of Mark, Jesus ministers to people that maybe have issues that were caused not because of any issue or sin of their own, but because circumstances threw them a curveball. Simon's mother-in-law uh, has a fever. There was no reason for her to have a fever other than we're human, and humans have fevers, and Christ reaches out to her. A leprosy. The cause of leprosy is it's a contagious disease. That's why they have leper colonies, to keep people separated. And this man was a leper. He was helpless in his need, and Jesus would minister to him. And so no doubt the people in Mark chapter 1 who were following after Jesus would find themselves in Capernaum on that very day in Mark chapter 2. And so then we have one other group. In verse 6 of chapter 2, we see those in the crowd who hindered others, those who found themselves hindering others. Notice what the text says. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves. Jesus had adversaries. 
I like that phrase, they were thinking to themselves. What that means is they were talking to their friend. Is that's what we do. We don't like something that we see, and we just quietly mutter something. Can you believe this is what he's doing? Oh, I'm sure they were thinking it as the text says. But knowing the chief priest and the rabbis of that day, they seemed to find themselves sitting in a group together. And they were angry about what Jesus was doing. They, they were upset. They said, Jesus is a blasphemer. How can he forgive sins? They didn't like Jesus. And so they were all about telling people, stay away from this guy. This guy is empowered by the devil. Stay away from him. He has counterfeit miracles and signs and wonders. These aren't real. You stick with us. Don't listen to what this Jesus says. And so this crowd has people who are hurting, who find themselves hurting because of sins or issues in their past that uh, they made with bad decisions. There are others that are helpless, that they find themselves hurting and in pain because of no issue of their own, but because life has thrown them a bad break. And finally, we have those who are hindering people from trying to get to Jesus. I want you to notice with me, this is our world in a nutshell. We all are people with baggage. We hide it sometimes better than others. But one of these people are the people that we find in our lives. One of these people uh, are ones that we could associate with. For some of us, we find ourselves hurting because we've made some bad decisions. Whether you have seen it or not, in your life there's something that in the past has caused you great pain. Maybe it's a checkered past, a divorce, a criminal record. Maybe it's some real bad decision you made as a young person or or in years past. You desire to live the life that God wants for you, but every time you turn around to try to make a difference, to try to live passionately, you're reminded of that stupid thing you did, that dumb decision that you made. I'll tell you, that's the hardest part of preaching in the church that you grew up in. This place reminds me not just of last Sunday, but it reminds me of some of the dumb things that I did as a young person in this place. And I don't even have to have someone remind me. I remember. I was talked to in that corner. I got yelled at in that room. I opened my fat mouth over there. And over there, one of the best things that ever happened was that yellow building got tore down because I spent most of my time over there, and it's gone. It's kind of forgotten about it. And so there's a reminder of dumb things. I got to be honest with you, when I was 14 years of age, I was asked to go on a missions trip. And the mission trip was supposed to be eight or nine weeks long all of the summer. We were going to go down to southern Mexico and minister in orphanages and all of that. People had raised money from this church so that I could go on this trip. And I lasted all of one week before I was sent home. I had to stand here, not at this pulpit, but another one, and in front of the congregation say, I'm sorry, I blew it. I'm a fathead. And I got sent home i got to be honest with you, there's not a Sunday I don't think that goes by that I don't remember that. Dumb decision, dumb mistakes. That if I lived in that past, God would never have given me the opportunities to proclaim and preach his word from this pulpit. But some of us are paralyzed by something in the past. 
that keeps us from doing great things for God. Others, maybe it's not because of a dumb decision. Maybe you're smarter than I am or God has just been incredibly gracious. But maybe you find yourself paralyzed or hurting because of the circumstances of the world. Maybe you lack passion, not because of something you did, but because something that has happened to you. Maybe as a young person you had a terrible home life. Maybe your family wasn't uh, functional and it found itself in all kinds of issues and struggles that as a young person you found yourself in. Maybe it's personal setbacks. Maybe it's a financial insecurity. Maybe it's trials that are all around you. Whatever it is, some of us lack faith in God in totally placing our faith and trust in Him every day to live that abundant life because we're pessimists by nature. We're waiting for the other shoe to drop. We are gun-shy that something else is going to happen. And so we're Christian Eeyores. Great things are happening around us, and we say, well, I'm not sure. I don't know. Right when good things start happening, that's when the devil starts attacking. So let's just stay away from that good stuff. Because if we stay far enough away from the good stuff, then the devil won't attack. I'd love to go tell people about Jesus, but we've got to be careful. Some bad things out there. I was talking with a man who years ago attended our church, and he was talking about how bad the world is. And, uh, and please don't take this the wrong way, but he, he was telling me about the church that they're a part of. And he says, man, the fellowship is great. And I said, praise God. He says, man, it's, it's all about the body. I said, praise God. And he says, we just love knowing that in this wicked, wicked world, there's a place where we can meet and that we don't have to worry about anything that's going outside those four walls. And I said, wait a minute. Jesus propels us out into the world. Jesus says, go and make disciples. He says, Tim, don't you know the wicked world that we live in? We do that and they'll come into our place. They'll wreck it. And I said, brother, there's more to the church than just fellowship. That's wonderful, and that's important. But get out into the world. And yes, that may mean you hang out with a person with a tattoo or two, with piercings that you wonder why they have them, and does it really hurt? It looks like it hurts. People with some bad language. You run into those people, you're probably at a 5Bs event, because I got a lot of employees that way. And yet, do you know what I know? That if I want to live passionately, i got to hang out with those people. Because deep down inside, oh, the exterior may look different, but they're just like me. People without a Savior. People who need Jesus. Maybe you're not passionate about life because someone keeps hindering, hindering you from that life. Older, mature folks, I'll speak to you because... Many times you're the culprit to these things. Not always, but many times you are. And you look at young people and teenagers and and people that are are struggling in their life of faith and, and you forget what it was like to be young. You forget the pressures of life. I was yelling at my son Noah this last week. By the way, Noah was running around and and uh, he broke his leg. You're going to see that if you, if you hang around. And, 
And he comes home and I'm, I'm upset because his leg hurts and because he can't do anything. And I'm like, get off your bottom, kid. I was a little more graphic than that. Get off your butt. Let's get to work. Let's go. He says, Dad, my leg hurts. It really hurts. I said, you're fine. Get up. He says, but Dad, it hurts. I said, when I was younger, I didn't let anything like that stop me. Oh, how I forget. A hangnail used to put me out of commission. And this kid, bless his heart, has a fractured ankle, and he's trying to please his dad. But you know what? I'm not giving him any encouragement to try to do that. When my wife called and said, yeah, they just casted it, I was like, I don't want to come home. I I don't want to see that kid, not because I'm mad at him, because I'm ashamed. And you know, we do that so many times. We hinder people. They're excited about what's going on. They've come back from a a great missions trip. They've come back and they're excited about the faith. and, And we say, oh, we've seen that before. Give it two weeks and the glow will be gone. They start inviting friends, and ah, they may come for the events, but they'll never stay when the preaching really comes out. Oh, you can't live that way. Don't, don't try to live that way. It's not going to accomplish anything. I tried it. I've been there, done that. It didn't work for me. And we hinder people, just like those chief priests. We watch uh, others live passionate lives, and we look, and we give our negative commentary. Ah, can you believe they're trying to do it? We tried that. It never worked. But I want you to notice that if you live like this, you will never do great things for God. You'll never live passionately. You'll never live the life that is in the fullness that God wants to give you. And so it involves what the four men that we see brought onto the picture show us. And that is, if we want to climb above the problems of life, there are going to be problems. There are going to be people that try to hinder us from our walk with God. But it means we must be hopeful. These four guys, we don't know their names. We don't know if they were from Capernaum. We don't know their occupations. But all we know is that they looked at the problems around them. And there was a lot of problems, a lot of hurting and helpless people. And there was this whole big soap opera going on of their chief priest and Jesus. And and the, and the confrontation that was ready to go. And they are focused in not on those issues. They're not tuned into that at all. They're saying, we've got a friend. We've got a friend who needs Jesus, and we're going to do everything in our power to get our friend to Jesus. That's job one. That's the only job that we have. Why? Because we hope and we believe that if we get our friend to Jesus, if we can get it close to Jesus, great things will happen. Let me tell you something. Some of us are lacking hope this morning that those four unnamed men had. And that is the idea that if I can just get close to Jesus, anything is possible. I don't care what's going on around me. Just get me as close to Jesus as possible. Just a moment with Jesus. If I can get to Jesus, then everything will turn out the way it needs to. If I can get to Jesus, then he'll change my life. And he'll make it different. This is what these guys were after. Now, let's go back to a theological uh, argument for this for a moment and, and move out of the practical life aspect of it. I want you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. I want us to be careful 
that before you start thinking that this is a message about positive thinking, that this is a message that, that is just, if you just have faith and, and, and just keep adding to your life faith and something will happen, uh, you'll be terribly wrong theologically. But there is a connection to our hope in Jesus Christ and the faith that we are called to live out. And in this great passage of faith, this is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. In verse 1, now faith is being sure of what we hope for. What these four men saw was they hoped that their friend would be healed. They hoped that their friend would be changed. And their faith said, that is found in Jesus. Let me ask you this question. When have you hoped to have seen your workplace come to know Jesus Christ? When have you hoped to see that loved one come to a saving knowledge of Christ as their Savior? When was the last time you hoped to see God move in your school or in your life that lives would be changed as a result? We say, I just don't have that faith. Notice what faith is. Faith is being sure of what we hope for. I believe with all my heart God can change my workplace for Jesus Christ. I believe that. I hope for it, and through faith, I believe that it can be accomplished. But some of us say, it'll never happen. I'm blown away with the revivals of our day. The great awakenings that took place here in colonial America remind us that this world could change for Jesus. Hundreds of thousands of people came to know Christ during those great awakenings. And it changed for a generation where people put their faith and trust in this world. And you don't think that it could happen today? If we would just hope for things and by faith believe that Jesus can do those things, then we would find a life that is passionate. Notice what verse 6 says. That it is because of this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe, they must have faith that he exists and rewards those who earnestly seek him. What that means is, is that you want to please God this morning? then you start hoping for things that God has a heart for. You start living passionately about the things God is passionate about. God's not passionate about the bears. He doesn't care. He really doesn't, and that bugs me as a sports fan. But he doesn't care. And so when we're living passionately about those things, God's saying, okay, that's great. That's wonderful, but that's not what you're supposed to be passionate about. What you're supposed to be passionate about is what I'm passionate about, what I'm excited about. And there are very few Christians anymore who are passionate about what God is passionate about, and they find themselves passionate about all the other things in this world. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, but that stuff just fills our schedule. Whereas the things that God is passionate about change our lives. And so we have to understand that we need to hope for the things that God wants us to hope for. To believe in the things that God wants us to believe in. Some of us are living mediocre lives of faith. And as a result of that, we never hope for anything. We never ask God for anything. We never see that God may really change the people around us. 
that he may change our circumstances because we're consigned to the thought that our lives are what they are and that there's very little that we can do about it. These four men prove us wrong. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be studying the life of Elijah. And James says this, Elijah, a man just like you and me. There was nothing special about this man. He was a mountain man. Nothing great about him. But he told a very wicked king that it would not rain. And he prayed. And it did not rain for over three years. And the Bible says that the prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was passionate about communicating the truth of God. And he stood up and he did that which was courageous. And he stood before a king and he declared that which was the will of God. And it took place. We need to live like the prophets. We need to live like these four men. I love what Victor Maxwell says of these men. He says, I'll give them names because they have no names. The first was called Frankie Faith. The second one's name was Larry Love. The third one was Harry Hope. And the fourth one was Gary Grit. Four characteristics in Mark chapter 2 of what Christians and followers of Jesus Christ need today. Faith, love, hope, and because we live in a world of sin, some grit, some perseverance. But, but how do we get that? And how do we get to the place of seeing that in our lives? It brings me to my second point, and that is we have to connect to the right person. It involves connecting with the right person. Notice what verse 4 says back in, we'll go back now to the practical story here of what's taking place. And notice what verse 4 says, Since they could not get him to Jesus, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging it, lowered the mat that the paralyzed man was lying on. Since they could not get to Jesus. They wanted to get to Jesus, Their desire was to get to Jesus. Their passion was directed to getting to Jesus, but they couldn't do it. Why would they want to get to Jesus? Because Jesus was the answer to what concerned them that day. Jesus was the only answer. And so their whole pursuit, their whole drive was in diligence to getting close to Jesus. It wasn't enough for them just to hang around where Jesus was at, to be in the crowd. You see, some of us like to be in the crowd. And right now, we're in the crowd. We're here, we're, we're, we're listening, we're hearing the words of Jesus. And some of us are happy just sitting in the pew listening to that. Some of us are just happy to, from an arm's length away to see or hear Jesus. But these guys weren't. And here's the amazing thought. It is those spectators that just want to have a touch of Jesus, just to see what Jesus is doing, that hinders the real people that want Jesus to get close to them. Sometimes Christians, we are the ones that hinder people from coming to Jesus because we've crowded the church with so many things that you couldn't get to Jesus if you tried. But these men wanted Jesus. They wanted Jesus because he was different than anybody else they had ever met. So why was it important for them to connect? Because Jesus lived a passionate life. They saw it. 
I'll tell you, when you live a life of passion, people will see it. People will gravitate towards it. And people did. Jesus had people following him wherever he went. And why was that? Because we see in chapter 1 how Jesus lived passionately. Number one, he spoke words of conviction. He spoke words of conviction. And that's what we should be doing. Notice what the text says in verse uh, 39 of Mark 1. Again, just a day or two before what we're seeing happen. This is what it says. It says uh, in verse 38, Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Why did Jesus come? To be a healer? No, he did heal, but he came to preach the word of God. Well, what did he preach? Notice uh, a verse, uh, let's see here, verse... uh, uh, I don't have it written down here. Verse 14 of Mark 1. Mark 1, 14. After John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus was passionate about sharing the good news of the gospel that he had come to bring. The good news. Are we so passionate about the good news of Jesus Christ that we're willing to proclaim it to all those around us? Jesus did, and he called people to repent. It's not easy to proclaim the good news. People will laugh at us. People will uh, mock us. We may lose friends out of the deal. We may lose popularity. But Jesus spoke with conviction. He was passionate about the good news, and so should we. Number two, he showed compassion to others. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He came to serve. And why did he serve? Because he was filled with compassion. Notice verse 41 of Mark 1. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. The text then says, filled with compassion. Jesus exude compassion. He, the, the very uh, pit of his stomach, uh, compassion ringed out because he agonized over the hearts of the people around him, the pains of those around him. He once looked at a crowd and, and he said that he was filled with compassion because they were harassed and hurting people. They were sheep without a shepherd. And he sat there and he said, I'm grieved by this and out of compassion he served. Some of us don't live out passionate lives because we're not compassionate. We don't care about the issues that concern others. We're so focused in on our things and our needs and our desires that we don't focus in on anyone else. I love what the text has, uh, says in uh, Mark one twenty nine. As soon as they left the synagogue, they go to ministry. Ministry wasn't just at the synagogue, but ministry was in people's homes. So they go to Simon's mother-in-law's and they heal her. And it says in verse 32, after that, that that evening, after sunset, this is after dark, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed people. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He drove out many demons, and he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. I want you to understand, a day of ministry for Jesus started very early and ended very late and involved some preaching. 
but it involved getting himself involved in the lives of others. Many came, the whole town came, and he didn't say, okay, enough is enough, I, I gotta go write a book. Enough is enough, I gotta go start my tape ministry. Enough is enough, I, I've got other things, more important things to do. But he met and ministered to people because he was filled with compassion. Jesus had a schedule that was around his compassion, and the question is, do we? Finally, he shows us how important it was to stay connected to God. Notice what happens after a full day of ministry into the evening. Verse 35 of Mark 1 says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Some of us don't live passionately because we're not connected to our God in heaven. Some of us don't live passionately and don't find ourselves needing to pray because we've got this life all figured out. We know what we need to accomplish. We know what we need to do. So who needs God to tell us what to do? And because of that, I will assure you of this. If your life is not bathed in prayer, then you are for sure not living the full life that God has for you. Because a prayer life is a dependent life that says, God, I need you to come and meet me in my day. I can't do anything apart from you. And so I'm going to begin this day. I'm going to end this day. I'm going to saturate this day with, Lord, what would you do? Lord, what must I resp- how must I respond? How must I live amidst the circumstances around me? Lord, wherever you want me to go, I will go. If you're not doing that, you've filled your life with all things that you can take care of, and yet that is not the life that God wants us to live. These men were diligent to getting to God, to Jesus Christ. Why? Because they knew that their needs would be met, and so they got there. Notice the third point, and I need to get moving here so we can close, and that is they chose the right path. They chose the right path. They could have heard the the crowd was too big. Knowing that, I know some of us, me included, uh, I could just hear the news report, yeah, we're over Capernaum right now, uh, Roger, and this is what we're seeing. There's a multitude of people at the house of, of Simon and Andrew, and it just seems to be inundated with people. I would just stay clear of Simon and Andrew's house. There's a gaper's delay going on there. And some of us say, there's a crowd, forget it. I don't like crowds. I don't want to deal with the crowd. It's going to create traffic issues. We're just going to stay away from there. They don't do that. They see the crowd. And they know they can't get to Jesus. And so they devise a plan. I wish I could have been there to be a part of it. But they devise a plan. They didn't say, oh, well, it's too hard to give, I give up. Or they didn't say, as some of us do, right when I want to get somewhere, this is what happens. I just want to meet Jesus. Just say hello to Jesus. I just want one minute with Jesus, and I can't get it. And this is what happens to me all the time. Nothing ever goes right for me. But this is where we find our application. These men had an imperative focus to get to Jesus. Time was of the essence. They may not ever see Jesus again. They seemingly loved this friend, and he needed healing. And so you know what they recognized? They had one opportunity. And they had to make the most of that opportunity. And my friends, this is where one month to live comes into play. We have one life to live. We have one opportunity to live it to the fullest. And if we don't want to live the life of regret, of missed opportunities, then we must do what these four guys did. And notice what they did. Number one, they recognized the needs around them. They weren't focused in on their need. 
And so they looked and they recognized the need that's before them. Write that in your outlines there. They recognized that need. Some of us are so busy that we don't see the needs before us. Some of us are so busy with the things of our own agendas in life that we don't see real hurting people around us. Jesus did. These men did. And because of that, they changed lives. We need to recognize it and bring people to Jesus because that is what they need. Number two, they removed the obstacles that hindered them. I see a couple obstacles that could have thwarted them. Number one, the crowd itself. They couldn't get to Jesus. We would have given up and gone home, some of us. Number two, the roof. Someone said, hey, if we can't get to Jesus through the front door, then let's go through the roof. Meaning we'll do whatever it takes to get to Jesus, and that's what they did. And so they broke through the ceiling. That's creative thinking. Some of us need to start thinking creatively about how God could use us. But next, notice that they show some courage, too. They don't worry about, and this is, this is classic Tim. Let's do it, yeah! What do you mean we're going to break through someone's roof? Let's not worry about that. Let's just do it. They weren't concerned that they were busting through someone's roof. Why? Because what they were doing wasn't because of just some excitable moment, because they knew that the roof kept their friend from being healed. And I think that at some point, these guys were creative. They were thoughtful guys from what the text seems to declare to us. That I think they said, you know what? Even if we have to pay for the roof to get fixed, we'll do it. Let's just get it open so we can get our friend to Jesus. Some of us aren't living passionate lives this morning because it costs us too much. It costs us too much. It costs time. It costs energy. They had to dig up that roof, which was probably made of tile and mud, and they had to dig through that, break through the ceiling wall. They had to do all that, and it cost them. They may have missed work. They may have missed other opportunities for them to get close. Understand this. When they lower their friend to Jesus, they find themselves still on the roof, but their friend is laid before Jesus. And some of us sometimes need to uh, allow someone else to get uh, closer to Jesus than, than we do in that moment. Some of us need to allow others to get there, and we need to allow the, the opportunity for them to get close, and it costs us sometimes. Number three, realize what matters most. They weren't sure what Jesus might do, but they recognized as they needed to get their friend to Jesus when we live lives that lead other people to Jesus, we live a life of contentment and fulfillment. Let me ask you, are you living a life that drives people to Jesus or keeps people away from him? Notice what takes place. He goes and he's laid before Jesus, and Jesus with a word of endearment says, Son, your sins are forgiven. They're forgiven. The friends didn't see this coming, but that was the greater need. It wasn't paralysis, the healing of paralysis. It was his sins to be forgiven. And so finally, we see one other thing, and that is that we need to respond by living out our faith. You want to live passionately? Then I want you to ask this week, what can I do different that will bring glory and honor to God? How can I involve myself in the circumstances of life that will show people Jesus? 
It is when we wake up with that thought in mind, when we have the understanding that we have a limited time to declare the greatness of Jesus, that we start living out our faith, and it will mean courage. You're going to learn about that in your small groups this week. The life of Joshua, where God says, I want you to do great things, but you must be strong and courageous. Start living out your faith. Start living passionately for Jesus and watch the life in all its fullness come to reality. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. You've spoken to us. Now, Lord, it is our response that is needed. Lord, I pray that we would not be the spectators in that house that kept others who needed Jesus to get to him. But Lord, that our passionate, that our lives of excitement for the Lord would, would never lack the zeal that you've called us to have. But as we serve you, we would be so excited to tell the world around us that you are our Savior, you are our Lord, and that we live for you. That in doing that, Father, lives would be changed. Lord, we thank you for the example of these four men who removed all the obstacles so that they may get one who needed you the help that he needed most. Lord, there's no greater thing than leading someone back to you. And so, Lord, I pray this week for the people of this church and my own life as well that we would be passionate about the things you're passionate about and be willing to take the risks that we're called to take so that you'll be brought glory in all that we say and do. We love you and we thank you for bringing us to this place. Now send us forth in fellowship in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. To you be the glory honor in your church. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Have a great morning. Go and fellowship together.